Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the, what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, Radio Free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to time. Recording by Andrew Drinkwater in Madison, Wisconsin, January 5th, 2008. The Mysteries of Udolfo by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 3, Chapter 8, Part 1. My tongue hath but a heavier tale to say. I play the torturer, by small and small, to lengthen out the worst that must be spoken. Richard II We now return, for a moment, to Venice, where Count Morano was suffering under an accumulation of misfortunes. Soon after his arrival in that city, he had been arrested by order of the Senate, and, without knowing of what he was suspected, was conveyed to a place of confinement whither the most strenuous enquiries of his friends had been unable to trace him. Who the enemy was that had occasioned him this calamity he had not been able to guess, unless, indeed, it was Montigny, on whom his suspicions rested, and not only with much apparent probability, but with justice. In the affair of the poisoned cup, Montigny had suspected Murano, but being unable to obtain the degree of proof which was necessary to convict him of a guilty intention, he had recourse to means of other revenge than he could hope to obtain by prosecution. He employed a person, in whom he believed he might confide, to drop a letter of accusation into denunciae secret, or lion's mouth which are fixed in a gallery of the Doge's palace as receptacles for anonymous information concerning persons who may be disaffected towards the state. As, on these occasions, the accuser is not confronted with the accused, a man may falsely impeach his enemy and accomplish an unjust revenge without fear of punishment or detection. That Montigny should have recourse to these diabolical means of ruining a person whom he suspected of having attempted his life is not in the least surprising. In the letter which he had employed as the instrument of his revenge, he accused Murano of designs against the state, which he attempted to prove with all the plausible simplicity of which he was master. And the Senate with whom suspicion was, at that time, almost equal to a proof, arrested the Count, in consequence of this accusation, and, without even hinting to him his crime, threw him into one of those secret prisons which were the terror of the Venetians, and in which persons often languished and sometimes died without being discovered by their friends. Morano had incurred the personal resentment of many members of the state. His habits of life had rendered him obnoxious to some, and his ambition, 
and the bold rivalship which he discovered on several public occasions to others. And it was not to be expected that mercy would soften the rigor of a law which was to be dispensed from the hands of his enemies. Montagny, meantime, was beset by dangers of another kind. His castle was besieged by troops who seemed willing to dare everything and to suffer patiently any hardships in pursuit of victory. The strength of the fortress, however, withstood their attack, and this with the vigorous defense of the garrison and the scarcity of provision on these wild mountains soon compelled the assailants to raise the siege. When Udolfo was once more left to the quiet possession of Montagny, he dispatched Ugo into Tuscany for Emily, whom he had sent from considerations of her personal safety, to a place of greater security than a castle which was, at that time, liable to be overrun by his enemies. Tranquility being once more restored to Udolfo, he was impatient to secure her again under his roof, and had commissioned Ugo to assist Bertrand in guarding her back to the castle. Thus compelled to return, Emily bade the kind Madalena farewell, with regret, and, after about a fortnight's stay in Tuscany, where she had experienced an interval of quiet, which was absolutely necessary to sustain her long harassed spirits, began once more to ascend the Apennine, from whose heights she gave a long and sorrowful look into the beautiful country that extended at their feet, and to the distant Mediterranean, whose waves she had so often wished would bear her back to France. The distress she felt on her return towards the place of her former sufferings was, however, softened by a conjecture that Valancourt was there, and she found some degree of comfort in the thought of being near him, notwithstanding the consideration that he was probably a prisoner. It was noon when she had left the cottage, and the evening was closed long before she came within the neighborhood of Rudolfo. There was a moon, but it shone only at intervals, for the night was cloudy, and, lighted by the torch which Ugo carried, the travelers paced silently along, Emily musing on her situation, and Bertrand and Ugo anticipating the comforts of a flask of wine and a good fire. For they had perceived for some time the difference between the warm climate of the lowlands of Tuscany and the nipping air of these upper regions. Emily was, at length, roused from her reverie by the far-off sound of the castle clock, to which she listened not without some degree of awe as it rolled away on the breeze. Another and another note succeeded, and died in sullen murmur among the mountains. To her mournful imagination, it seemed a knell measuring out some fateful period for her. Aye, there is the old clock, said Bertrand. There he is still. The cannon have not silenced him. No, answered Ugo. He crowed as loud as the best of them in the midst of it all. There he was roaring out in the hottest fire I have seen this many a day. 
I said that some of them would have had a hit at the old fellow, but he escaped, and the tower too. The road winding round the base of a mountain, they now came within view of the castle, which was shewed in the perspective of the valley by a gleam of moonshine, and then vanished in shade. While even a transient view of it had awakened the poignancy of Emily's feelings. Its massy and gloomy walls gave her terrible ideas of imprisonment and suffering. Yet, as she advanced, some degree of hope mingled with her terror. For, though this was certainly the residence of Montagny, it was possibly also that of Valancourt, and she could not approach a place where he might be without experiencing somewhat of the joy of hope. They continued to wind along the valley, and, soon after, she saw again the old walls and moonlit towers rising over the woods. The strong rays enabled her, also, to perceive the ravages which the siege had made, with the broken walls and shattered battlements, for they were now at the foot of the steep on which Udolpho stood. Massy fragments had rolled down among the woods, through which the travelers now began to ascend, and there mingled with the loose earth and pieces of rock they had brought with them. The woods, too, had suffered much from the batteries above, for here the enemy had endeavored to screen themselves from the fire of the ramparts. Many noble trees were leveled with the ground, and others, to a wide extent, were entirely stripped of their upper branches. We had better dismount, said Ugo, and lead the mules up the hill, or we shall get into some of the holes which the balls have left. Here are plenty of them. Give me the torch, continued Ugo, after they had dismounted, and take care you don't stumble over anything that lies in your way, for the ground is not yet cleared of the enemy. How? exclaimed Emily. Are any of the enemy here, then? Nay, I don't know for that now, he replied. But when I came away, I saw one or two of them lying under the trees. As they proceeded, the torch threw a gloomy light upon the ground, and far among the recesses of the woods. And Emily feared to look forward, lest some object of horror should meet her eye. The path was often strewn with broken heads of arrows and the shattered remains of armor, such as at that period mingled with the lighter dress of the soldiers. Bring the light hither, said Bertrand. I have stumbled over something that rattles loud enough. Hugo, holding up the torch, they perceived the steel breastplate on the ground, which Bertrand raised, and they saw that it was pierced through and that the lining was entirely covered with blood. But upon Emily's earnest entreaties that they would proceed, Bertrand, uttering some joke upon the unfortunate person to whom it had belonged, threw it hard upon the ground, and they passed on. At every step she took, Emily feared to see some vestige of death. Coming soon after to an opening in the woods, Bertrand stopped to survey the ground which was encumbered with massy trunks and branches of the trees that had so lately adorned it. 
and seemed to have been a spot particularly fatal to the besiegers, for it was evident from the destruction of the trees that here the hottest fire of the garrison had been directed. As Ugo held again forth the torch, steel glittered between the fallen trees. The ground beneath was covered with broken arms and with the torn vestments of soldiers, whose mangled forms Emily almost expected to see, and she again entreated her companions to proceed, who were, however, too intent in their examination to regard her, and she turned her eyes from this desolated scene to the castle above, where she observed lights gliding along the ramparts. Presently, the castle clock struck twelve, and then a trumpet sounded, of which Emily inquired the occasion. Oh, they are only changing watch, replied Ugo. I do not remember this trumpet, said Emily. It is a new custom. It is only an old one revived, lady. We always use it in time of war. We have sounded it at midnight, ever since the place was besieged. Hark, said Emily, as the trumpet sounded again, and in the next moment she heard a faint clash of arms, and then the watchword passed along the terrace above, and was answered from a distant part of the castle, after which all was again still. She complained of cold and begged to go on. Presently, lady, said Bertrand turning over some broken arms with the pike he usually carried. What have we here? Hark! cried Emily. What noise was that? What noise was it? said Ugo, starting up and listening. Hush! repeated Emily. It surely came from the ramparts above, and, on looking up, they perceived a light moving along the walls. While, in the next instant, the breeze swelling, the voice sounded louder than before. Who goes yonder? cried a sentinel of the castle. Speak, or it will be worse for you. Bertrand uttered a shout of joy. Ha! My brave comrade, is it you? said he. And he blew a shrill whistle, which signal was answered by another from the soldier on watch and the party, then passing forward, soon after emerged from the woods upon the broken road that led immediately to the castle gates, and Emily saw, with renewed terror, the whole of that stupendous structure. Alas, said she to herself, I am going again into my prison. Here has been warm work by St. Marco, cried Bertrand, waving a torch over the ground. The balls have torn up the earth here with a vengeance. Aye, replied Ugo. They were fired from that redoubt yonder, and rare execution they did. The enemy made a furious attack upon the great gates, but they might have guessed they never could carry it there, for besides the cannon from the walls, our archers on the two round towers showered down upon them at such a rate that by holy Peter, there is no standing it. I never saw a better sight in my life. I laughed till my sides ached to see how the maids scampered. Bertrand, my good fellow, thou shouldst have been among them. 
I warrant thou wouldst have won the race. Ha, you are at your old tricks again, said Bertrand in a surly tone. It is well for thee thou art so near the castle. Thou knowest I have killed my man before now. Ugo replied only by a laugh, and then gave some further account of the siege, to which, as Emily listened, she was struck by the strong contrast of the present scene with that which had so lately been acted here. The mingled uproar of cannons, drums, and trumpets, the groans of the conquered, and the shouts of the conquerors were now sunk into a silence so profound that it seemed as if death had triumphed alike over the vanquished and the victor. The shattered condition of one of the towers of the great gates by no means confirmed the valiant account just given by Ugo of the scampering party who, it was evident, had not only made a stand, but had done much mischief before they took to flight. For this tower appeared, as far as Emily could judge by the dim moonlight that fell upon it, be laid open, and the battlements were nearly demolished. While she gazed, a light glimmered through one of the lower loopholes and disappeared. But in the next moment, she perceived through the broken wall a soldier with a lamp ascending the narrow staircase that wound within the tower, and remembering that it was the same she had passed up on the night when Barnardine had deluded her with a promise of seeing Madame Montigny, fancy gave her somewhat of the terror she had then suffered. She was now very near the gates, over which the soldier having opened the door of the portal chamber, the lamp he carried gave her a dusky view of that terrible apartment, and she almost sunk under the recollected horrors of that moment, when she had drawn aside the curtain and discovered the object it was meant to conceal. Perhaps, said she to herself, it is now used for a similar purpose. Perhaps that soldier goes at this dead hour to watch over the corpse of his friend. The little remains of her fortitude now gave way to the united force of remembered and anticipated horrors. For the melancholy fate of Madame Montigny appeared to foretell her own. She considered that, though the Languedoc estates, if she relinquished them, might satisfy Montigny's avarice, they might not appease his vengeance, which was seldom pacified but by a terrible sacrifice. And she thought that, were she to resign them, the fear of justice might urge him either to detain her a prisoner or to take away her life. They were now arrived at the gates, where Bertrand, observing the light glimmer through a small casement of the portal chamber, called aloud, and the soldier, looking out, demanded who was there. Here I have brought you a prisoner, said Ugo. Open the gate and let us in. Tell me first who it is that demands entrance, replied the soldier. What, my old comrade, cried Ugo, don't you know me? Not know Ugo. I have brought home a prisoner here, bound hand and foot, a fellow who has been drinking Tuscany wine, while we here have been fighting. You will not rest till you meet with your match, said Bertrand sullenly. 
Ha, my comrade, is it you? said the soldier. I'll be with you presently. Emily presently heard his steps descending the stairs within, and then the heavy chain fall, and the bolts undraw of a small postern door, which he opened to admit the party. He held the lamp low to shew the step at the gate, and she found herself once more beneath the gloomy arch and heard the door close that seemed to shut her from the world forever. In the next moment, she was in the first court of the castle, where she surveyed the spacious and solitary area with a kind of calm despair, while the dead hour of the night, the gothic gloom of the surrounding buildings, and the hollow and imperfect echoes which they returned, as Ugo and the soldier conversed together, assisted to increase the melancholy forebodings of her heart. Passing on to the second court, a distant sound broke feebly on the silence, and gradually swelling louder, as they advanced, Emily distinguished voices of revelry and laughter, but they were, to her, far other than sounds of joy. Why, have you got some Tuscany wine among you here, said Bertrand, if one may judge by the uproar that is going forward. Ugo has taken a larger share of that than of fighting, I'll be sworn. Who is carousing at this late hour? His Excellenza and the Signors, replied the soldier. It is a sign you are a stranger at the castle, or you would not need to ask the question. They are brave spirits that do without sleep. They generally pass the night in good cheer. Would that we who keep the watch had a little of it. It is cold work pacing the rampart so many hours of the night. If one has no good liquor to warm one's heart. Courage, my lad, courage ought to warm your heart, said Ugo. Courage, replied the soldier sharply with a menacing air, which Ugo perceiving prevented his saying more by returning to the subject of the carousal. This is a new custom, said he. When I left the castle, the signors used to sit up counseling. Aye, and for that matter, carousing too, replied the soldier. But since the siege, they have done nothing but make merry. And if I was they, I would settle accounts with myself for all the hard fighting the same way. End of Volume 3, Chapter 8, Part 1 They had now crossed the second court and reached the hall door when the soldier, bidding them good night, hastened back to his post and, while they waited for admittance, Emily considered how she might avoid seeing Montigny and retire unnoticed to her former apartment, for she shrunk from the thought of encountering either him or any of his party at this hour. The uproar within the castle was now so loud that, though Ugo knocked repeatedly at the hall door, he was not heard by any of the servants, a circumstance which increased Emily's alarm, while it allowed her time to deliberate on the means of retiring unobserved. For, though she might, perhaps, pass up the great staircase unseen, it was impossible she could find the way to her chamber without a light, the difficulty of procuring which, and the danger of wandering about the castle without one, immediately struck her. 
Bertrand had only a torch, and she knew that the servants never brought a taper to the door, for the hall was sufficiently lighted by the large tripod lamp which hung in the vaulted roof, and while she should wait till Annette could bring her a taper, Montigny or some of his companions might discover her. The door was now opened by Carlo, and Emily, having requested him to send Annette immediately with a light to the great gallery where she determined to await her, passed on with hasty steps towards the staircase, while Bertrand and Hugo, with the torch, followed old Carlo to the servants' hall, impatient for supper and the warm blaze of a wood fire. Emily, lighted only by the feeble rays which the lamp above threw between the arches of this extensive hall, endeavored to find her way to the staircase, now hid in obscurity, while the shouts of merriment that burst from a remote apartment served by heightening her terror to increase her perplexity, and she expected every instant to see the door of that room open and Montagny and his companions issue forth. Having, at length, reached the staircase and found her way to the top, she seated herself on the last stair to await the arrival of Annette, for the profound darkness of the gallery deterred her from proceeding farther, and, while she listened for her footstep, she heard only distant sounds of revelry, which rose in sullen echoes from among the arcades below. Once she thought she heard a low sound from the dark gallery behind her, and, turning her eyes, fancied she saw something luminous moving it. And, since she could not at this moment subdue the weakness that caused her fears, she quitted her seat and crept softly down a few stairs lower. Annette, not yet appearing, Emily now concluded that she was gone to bed and that nobody chose to call her up. And the prospect that presented itself of passing the night in darkness in this place or in some other equally forlorn, for she knew it would be impracticable to find her way through the intricacies of the galleries to her chamber, drew tears of mingled terror and despondency from her eyes. While thus she sat, she fancied she heard again an odd sound from the gallery and she listened, scarcely daring to breathe, but the increasing voices below overcame every other sound. Soon after, she heard Montigny and his companions burst into the hall, who spoke as if they were much intoxicated, and seemed to be advancing towards the staircase. She now remembered that they must come this way to reach their chambers, and, forgetting all the terrors of the gallery, hurried towards it with an intention of secreting herself in some of the passages that opened beyond and of endeavoring, when the signors were retired, to find her way to her own room or to that of Annette, which was in a remote part of the castle. With extended arms, she crept along the gallery, still hearing the voices of persons below who seemed to stop in conversation at the foot of the staircase, 
and then pausing for a moment to listen, half fearful of going further into the darkness of the gallery, where she still imagined, from the noise she had heard, that some person was lurking. They are already informed of my arrival, said she, and Montigny is coming himself to seek me. In the present state of his mind, his purpose must be desperate. Then, recollecting the scene that had passed in the corridor on the night preceding her departure from the castle, O oh, Valancourt, said she, I must then resign you forever. To brave any longer the injustice of Montigny would not be fortitude but rashness. Still the voices below did not draw nearer, but they became louder, and she distinguished those of Verezzi and Bertolini above the rest, while the few words she caught made her listen more anxiously for others. The conversation seemed to concern herself, and, having ventured to step a few paces nearer to the staircase, she discovered that they were disputing about her, each seeming to claim some former promise of Montigny, who appeared, at first, inclined to appease and persuade them to return to their wine but afterwards to be weary of the dispute. And, saying that he left them to settle it as they could, was returning with the rest of the party to the apartment he had just quitted. Verezzi then stopped him. Where is she, signor, said he, in a voice of impatience. Tell us where she is. I have already told you that I do not know, replied Montigny who seemed to be somewhat overcome with wine. But she has most probably gone to her apartment. Verezzi and Bertolini now desisted from their inquiries and sprang to the staircase together, while Emily, who, during this discourse, had trembled so excessively that she had with difficulty supported herself, seemed inspired with new strength. The moment she heard the sound of their steps, and ran along the gallery, dark as it was, with the fleetness of a fawn. But, long before she reached its extremity, the light which Verezzi carried flashed upon the walls. Both appeared, and instantly perceiving Emily, pursued her. At this moment, Bertolini, whose steps, though swift, were not steady, and whose impatience overcame what little caution he had hitherto used, stumbled and fell at his length. The lamp fell with him, and was presently expiring on the floor, but Verezzi, regardless of saving it, seized the advantage this incident gave him over his rival, and followed Emily, to whom, however, the light had shown one of the passages that branched from the gallery, and she instantly turned into it. Verezzi could just discern the way she had taken, and this he pursued, but the sound of her steps soon sunk in distance, while he, less acquainted with the passage, was obliged to proceed through the dark with caution, lest he should fall down a flight of steps, such as in this extensive old castle frequently terminated an avenue. This passage at length brought Emily to the corridor, into which her own chamber opened, and, not hearing any footsteps, she paused to take breath, 
and consider what was the safest design to be adopted. She had followed this passage merely because it was the first that had appeared, and now that she had reached the end of it, was as perplexed as before. Whither to go, or how further to find her way in the dark, she knew not. She was aware only that she must not seek her apartment, for there she would certainly be sought, and her danger increased every instant while she remained near it. Her spirits and her breath, however, were so much exhausted that she was compelled to rest for a few minutes at the end of the passage, and still she heard no steps approaching. As thus she stood, light glimmered under an opposite door of the gallery, and from its situation she knew that it was the door of that mysterious chamber, where she had made a discovery so shocking that she never remembered it but with the utmost horror. That there should be light in this chamber, and at this hour, excited her strong surprise, and she felt a momentary terror concerning it, which did not permit her to look again, for her spirits were now in such a state of weakness that she almost expected to see the door slowly open and some horrible object appear at it. Still she listened for a step along the passage and looked up it where not a ray of light appeared. She concluded that Varetsi had gone back for the lamp and believing that he would shortly be there, she again considered which way she should go, or rather, which way she could find in the dark. A faint ray still glimmered under the opposite door, but so great and perhaps so just was her horror of that chamber, that she would not again have tempted its secrets, though she had been certain of obtaining the light so important to her safety. She was still breathing with difficulty, and resting at the end of the passage, when she heard a rustling sound, and then a low voice sown very near her, that it seemed close to her ear, but she still had presence of mind to check her emotion, and to remain quite still. In the next moment, she perceived it to be the voice of Varetsi, who did not appear to know that she was there, but to have spoken to himself. The air is fresher here, said he. This should be the corridor. Perhaps he was one of those heroes whose courage could defy an enemy better than darkness, and he tried to rally his spirits with the sound of his own voice. However this might be, he turned to the right and proceeded with the same stealing steps towards Emily's apartment, apparently forgetting that in darkness, she could easily elude his search, even in her chamber, and, like an intoxicated person, he followed pertinaciously the one idea that had possessed his imagination. The moment she heard his steps steal away, she left her station and moved softly to the other end of the corridor determined to trust again to chance, and to quit it by the first avenue she could find. But, before she could effect this, light broke upon the walls of the gallery, and, looking back, she saw Varetsi crossing it towards her chamber. 
She now glided into a passage that opened on the left, without, as she thought, being perceived. But, in the next instant, another light, glimmering at the further end of this passage, threw her into a new terror. While she stopped and hesitated which way to go, the pause allowed her to perceive that it was Annette, who advanced, and she hurried to meet her. But her imprudence again alarmed Emily, on perceiving whom, she burst into a scream of joy, and it was some minutes before she could be prevailed with to be silent, or to release her mistress from the ardent clasp in which she held her. When, at length, Emily made Annette comprehend her danger, they hurried towards Annette's room, which was in a distant part of the castle. No apprehensions, however, could yet silence the latter. Oh, dear mademoiselle, said she as they passed along, what a terrified time I have had of it. Oh, I thought I should have died a hundred times. I never thought I should live to see you again. And I was never so glad to see anybody in my whole life as I am to see you now. Hark, cried Emily, we are pursued. That was the echo of steps. No, mademoiselle, said Annette. It was only the echo of a door shutting. Sounds run along these vaulted passages so that one is continually deceived by it. If one does but speak or cough, it makes a noise as loud as a cannon. And there is a greater necessity for us to be silent, said Emily. Pretty say no more till we reach your chamber. Here at length they arrived, without interruption, and Annette having fastened the door, Emily sat down on her little bed to recover breath and composure. To her inquiry, whether Valancourt was among the prisoners in the castle, Annette replied that she had not been able to hear, but that she knew there were several persons confined. She then proceeded, in her tedious way, to give an account of the siege, or rather a detail of her terrors and various sufferings during the attack. But, added she, when I heard the shouts of victory from the ramparts, I thought we were all taken, and I gave myself up for lost, instead of which we had driven the enemy away. I went then to the north gallery and saw a great many of them scampering away among the mountains. But the rampart walls were all in ruin, as one may say, and there was a dismal sight to see down among the woods below, where the poor fellows were lying in heaps but were carried off presently by their comrades. While the siege was still going on, the Signor was here and there and everywhere at the same time, as Ludovico told me, or he would not let me see anything in the room hardly, and locked me up, as he has often done before, in a room in the middle of the castle, and used to bring me food and come and talk with me as often as he could. And I must say, if it had not been for Ludovico, I should have died outright. Well, Annette, said Emily, and how have affairs gone on since the siege? Oh, sad, hurly-burly doings, mademoiselle, replied Annette. The signors have done nothing but sit and drink and game ever since. They sit up all night and play among themselves. For all those riches and fine things they brought in, sometimes since, when they used to go out a robbing, or as good, for days together. 
And then they have dreadful quarrels about who loses and who wins. That fierce Signor Varezzi is always losing, as they tell me, and Signor Orsino wins from him. And this makes him very wroth, and they have had several hard set twos about it. Then all those fine ladies are at the castle still, and I declare I am frighted whenever I meet any of them in the passages. Surely, Annette, said Emily starting, I heard a noise, listen. After a long pause, no, mademoiselle, said Annette, it was only the wind in the gallery. I often hear it when it shakes the old doors at the other end. But won't you go to bed, mademoiselle? You surely will not sit out starving all night. Emily now laid herself down on the mattress, and desired Annette to leave the lamp burning on the hearth. Having done which, the latter placed herself beside Emily, who, however, was not suffered to sleep, for she again thought she heard a noise from the passage. And Annette was again trying to convince her that it was only the wind, when footsteps were distinctly heard near the door. Annette was now starting from the bed, but Emily prevailed her to remain there, and listened with her in a state of terrible expectation. The steps still loitered at the door, when presently an attempt was made on the lock, and in the next instant a voice called, For heaven's sake, Annette, do not answer, said Emily softly. Remain quite still, but I fear we must extinguish the lamp or its glare will betray us. Holy Virgin, exclaimed Annette, forgetting her discretion. I would not be in darkness now for the whole world. While she spoke, the voice became louder than before, and repeated Annette's name. Blessed Virgin, cried she suddenly, it is only Ludovico. She rose to open the door, but Emily prevented her, till they should be more certain that it was he alone with whom Annette at length talked for some time, and learned that he was come to inquire after herself, whom he had let out of her room to go to Emily, and that he was now returned to lock her in again. Emily, fearful of being overheard, if they conversed any longer through the door, consented that it should be opened, and a young man appeared, whose open countenance confirmed the favorable opinion of him which his care of Annette had already prompted her to form. She, she entreated his protection, should Verezzi make his requisite, and Ludovico offered to pass the night in an old chamber adjoining that opened from the gallery, and on the first alarm, to come to their defense. Emily was much soothed by this proposal, and Ludovico, having lighted his lamp, went to his station, while she once more endeavored to repose on her mattress. But a variety of interests pressed upon her attention and prevented sleep. She thought much on what Annette had told her of the dissolute manners of Montigny and his associates, and more of his present conduct towards herself, and of the danger from which she had just escaped. From the view of her present situation, she shrunk as from a new picture of terror. She saw herself in a castle, inhabited by vice and violence, seated beyond the reach of law or justice, in the power of a man whose perseverance was equal to every occasion, 
and in whom passions, of which revenge was not the weakest, entirely supplied the place of principles. She was compelled, once more, to acknowledge that it would be folly, and not fortitude, any longer to dare his power, and resigning all hopes of future happiness with Valancourt, she determined that, on the following morning, she would compromise with Montigny, and give up her estates, on condition that he would permit her immediate return to France. Such considerations kept her waking for many hours, but the night passed without further alarm from Verezzi. On the next morning, Emily had a long conversation with Ludovico, in which she heard circumstances concerning the castle, and received hints of the designs of Montigny that considerably increased her alarms. On expressing her surprise that Ludovico, who seemed to be so sensible of the evils of his situation, should continue it, he informed her that it was not his intention to do so, and she then ventured to ask him if he would assist her to escape from the castle. Ludovico assured her of his readiness to attempt this, but strongly represented the difficulty of the enterprise, and the certain destruction which must ensure should Montigny overtake them before they had passed the mountains. He, however, promised to be watchful of every circumstance that might contribute to the success of the attempt, and to think upon some plan of departure. Emily now confided to him the name of Valancourt, and begged he would inquire for such a person among the prisoners in the castle, for the faint hope which this conversation awakened made her now recede from her resolution of an immediate compromise with Montigny. She determined, if possible, to delay this till she heard further from Ludovico, and, if his designs were found to be impracticable, to resign the estates at once. Her thoughts were on this subject when Montigny, who was now recovered from the intoxication of the preceding night, sent for her, and she immediately obeyed the summons. He was alone. I find, said he, that you were not in your chamber last night. Where were you? Emily related to him some circumstances of her alarm, and entreated his protection from a repetition of them. You know the terms of my protection, said he. If you really value this, you will secure it. His open declaration that he would only conditionally protect her while she remained a prisoner in the castle, shewed Emily the necessity of an immediate compliance with his terms. But she first demanded whether he would permit her immediately to depart if she gave up her claim to the contested estates. In a very solemn manner, he then assured her that he would, and immediately laid before her a paper which was to transfer the right of those estates to himself. She was, for a considerable time, unable to sign it, and her heart was torn with contending interests, for she was about to resign the happiness of all her future years, the hope which had sustained her in so many hours of adversity. 
After hearing from Montigny a recapitulation of the conditions of her compliance, and a remonstrance that his time was valuable, she put her hand to the paper. When she had done which, she fell back in her chair, but soon recovered, and desired that he would give orders for her departure, and that he would allow Annette to accompany her. Montigny smiled. It was necessary to deceive you, said he. There was no other way of making you act reasonably. You shall go, but it must not be at present. You must first secure these estates by possession. When that is done, you may return to France, if you will. The deliberate villainy with which he violated the solemn engagement he had just entered into shocked Emily as much as the certainty that she had made a fruitless sacrifice and must still remain his prisoner. She had no words to express what she felt and knew that it would have been useless if she had. As she looked piteously at Montigny, he turned away and at the same time desired she would withdraw to her apartment. But unable to leave the room, she sat down in a chair near the door and sighed heavily. She had neither words nor tears. Why will you indulge this childish grief, said he. Endeavor to strengthen your mind, to bear patiently what cannot now be avoided. You have no real evil to lament. Be patient, and you will be sent back to France. At present, retire to your apartment. I dare not go, sir, said she, where I shall be liable to the intrusion of Signor Verezzi. Have I not promised to protect you, said Montigny. You have promised, sir, replied Emily, after some hesitation. And is not my promise sufficient, added he sternly. You will recollect your former promise, Signor, said Emily, trembling. You may determine for me whether I ought to rely upon this. Will you provoke me to declare to you that I will not protect you then? said Montigny, in a tone of haughty displeasure. If that will satisfy you, I will do it immediately. Withdraw to your chamber before I retract my promise. You have nothing to fear there. Emily left the room and moved slowly into the hall, where the fear of meeting Verezzi or Bertolini made her quicken her steps, though she could scarcely support herself and soon after she reached once more her own apartment. Having looked fearfully around her to examine if any person was there, and having searched every part of it, she fastened the door and sat down by one of the casements. Here, while she looked out for some hope to support her fainting spirits, which had been so long harassed and oppressed that if she had not now struggled much against misfortune, they would have left her, perhaps forever. She endeavored to believe that Montigny did really intend to permit her return to France as soon as he secured her property, and that he would, in the meantime, protect her from insult. But her chief hope rested with Ludovico, who, she doubted not, would be zealous in her cause, though he seemed almost to despair of success in it. 
One circumstance, however, she had to rejoice in. Her prudence, or rather her fears, had saved her from mentioning the name of Valancourt to Montigny, which she was several times on the point of doing before she signed the paper, and of stipulating for his release, if he should be really a prisoner in the castle. Had she done this, Montigny's jealous fears would now probably have loaded Valancourt with new severities, and have suggested the advantage of holding him captive for life. Thus passed the melancholy day, as she had before passed many in this same chamber. When night drew on, she would have withdrawn herself to Annette's bed, had not a particular interest inclined her to remain in this chamber, in spite of her fears. For when the castle should be still, and the customary hour arrived, she determined to watch for the music which she had formerly heard. Though it sounds might not enable her to positively determine whether Valancourt was there, they would perhaps strengthen her opinion that he was, and impart the comfort so necessary to her present support. But, on the other hand, if all should remain silent, she hardly dared to suffer her thoughts to glance that way, but waited with impatient expectation the approaching hour. The night was stormy. The battlements of the castle appeared to rock in the wind, and at intervals long groans seemed to pass on the air, such as those which often deceive the melancholy mind in tempests and amid scenes of desolation. Emily heard, as formerly, the sentinels pass along the terrace to their posts, and, looking out from her casement, observed that the watch was doubled. A precaution, which appeared necessary enough, when she threw her eyes on the walls and saw their shattered condition. The well-known sounds of the soldiers' march and of their distant voices, which passed her in the wind, were lost again, recalled to her memory the melancholy sensation she had suffered when she formerly heard the same sounds and occasioned almost involuntary comparisons between her present and her late situation. But this was no subject for congratulations, and she wisely checked the course of her thoughts, while, as the hour was not yet come, in which she had been accustomed to hear the music, she closed the casement and endeavored to await impatience. The door of the staircase she tried to secure, as usual, with some of the furniture in the room. But this expedient her fears now represented to her to be very inadequate to the power and perseverance of Verezzi, and she often looked at a large and heavy chest that stood in the chamber, with wishes that she and Annette had strength enough to move it. While she blamed the long stay of this girl, who was still with Ludovico and some of the other servants, she trimmed her wood fire to make the room appear less desolate, and sat down beside it with a book, which her eyes perused, while her thoughts wandered to Valancourt and her own misfortunes. As she sat thus, she thought, in a pause of the wind, she distinguished music, 
and went to the casement to listen. But the loud swell of the gust overcame every other sound. When the wind sunk again, she distinctly heard, in the deep pause that succeeded, the sweet strings of a lute. But again, the rising tempest bore away the notes, and again was succeeded by a solemn pause. Emily, trembling with hope and fear, opened her casement to listen, and to try whether her own voice could be heard by the musician. For to endure any longer this state of torturing suspense concerning Valancourt seemed to be utterly impossible. It was a kind of breathless stillness in the chambers that permitted her to distinguish from below the tender notes of the very lute she had formerly heard, and with it, a plaintive voice, made sweeter by the low rustling sound that now began to creep along the wood tops, till it was lost in the rising wind. Their tall heads then began to wave, while, through a forest of pine on the left, the wind, groaning heavily, rolled onwards over the woods below bending them almost to their roots. And, as the long resounding gale swept away, other woods on the right seemed to answer the loud lament. Then others, further still, softened it into a murmur that died into silence. Emily listened with mingled awe and expectation, hope and fear. And again the melting sweetness of the lute was heard, and the same solemn breathing voice. Convinced that these came from an apartment underneath, she leaned far out of her window, that she might discover whether any light was there. But the casements below, as well as those above, were sunk so deep in the thick walls of the castle that she could not see them or even the faint ray that probably glimmered through their bars. She then ventured to call, but the wind bore her voice to the other end of the terrace, and then the music was heard as before, in the pause of the gust. Suddenly she thought she heard a noise in her chamber, and she drew herself within the casement, but in a moment after, distinguishing Annette's voice at the door, she concluded it was her she had heard before, and she let her in. Move softly, Annette, to the casement, said she, and listen with me. The music has returned. They were silent till the measure changing. Annette exclaimed, Holy Virgin, I know that song well. It is a French song, one of the favorite songs of my dear country. This was the ballad Emily had heard on a former night, though not the one she had first listened to from the fishing house in Gascony. Oh, it is a Frenchman that sings, said Annette. It must be Monsieur Valancourt. Hark, Annette, do not speak so loud, said Emily. We may be overheard. What? By the Chevalier, said Annette. No, replied Emily mournfully, but by someone who may report us to the Signor. What reason have you to think it is Monsieur Valancourt who sings? 
But hark, now the voice swells louder. Do you recollect those tones? I fear to trust my own judgment. I never happened to hear the Chevalier sing, Mademoiselle, replied Annette, who, as Emily was disappointed to perceive, had no stronger reason for concluding this to be Valancourt than that the musician must be a Frenchman. Soon after, she heard the song of the fishing house and distinguished her own name, which was repeated so distinctly that Annette had heard it also. She trembled sunk into a chair by the window, and Annette called aloud, Monsieur Valancourt, Monsieur Valancourt, while Emily endeavored to check her, but she repeated the call more loudly than before, and the lute and the voice suddenly stopped. Emily listened for some time in a state of intolerable suspense, but no answer being returned. It does not signify, Mademoiselle, said Annette. It is the Chevalier, and I will speak to him. No, Annette, said Emily. I think I will speak to him myself. If it is he, he will know my voice, and speak again. Who is it, said she, that sings at this late hour? A long silence ensued, and, having repeated the question, she perceived some faint accents mingling in the blast that swept by, but the sounds were so distant and passed so suddenly that she could scarcely hear them, much less distinguish the words they uttered or recognize the voice. After another pause, Emily called again, and again they heard a voice, but as faintly as before, and they perceived and there were other circumstances, besides the strength and direction of the wind, to contend with. For the great depth, at which the casements were fixed in the castle walls, contributed still more than the distance to prevent articulated sounds from being understood, though general ones were easily heard. Emily, however, ventured to believe, from the circumstance of her voice alone having been answered, that the stranger was Valancourt, as well as that he knew her, and she gave herself up to speechless joy. Bonnet, however, was not speechless. She renewed her calls, but received no answer, and Emily, fearing that a further attempt, which certainly was, as present, highly dangerous, might expose them to the guards of the castle while it could not perhaps terminate her suspense, insisted on Annette's dropping the enquiry for this night, though she determined herself to question Ludovico on the subject in the morning more urgently than she had yet done. She was now unable to say that the stranger whom she had formerly heard was still in the castle, and to direct Ludovico to that part of it in which she was confined. Emily, attended by Annette, continued at the casement for some time, but all remained still. They heard neither lute nor voice again, and Emily was now as much oppressed by anxious joy as she lately was by a sense of her misfortunes. With hasty steps, she paced the room, now half calling on Valancourt's name, 
then suddenly stopping, and now going through the casement and listening, where, however, she heard nothing but the solemn waving of the woods. Sometimes her impatience to speak to Ludovico prompted her to send Annette to call him, but a sense of the impropriety of this at midnight restrained her. Annette, meanwhile, as impatient as her mistress, went as often to the casement to listen, and returned almost as much disappointed. She, at length, pensioned Signor Baretzi, and her fear lest he should enter the chamber by the staircase door. But the night is now almost past, mademoiselle, said she, recollecting herself. There is the morning light, beginning to peep over those mountains yonder in the east. Emily had forgotten, till this moment, that such a person existed as Verezzi, and all the danger that had appeared to threaten her. But the mention of his name renewed her alarm, and she remembered the old chest which she had wished to place against the door, which she now, with Annette, attempted to move, but it was so heavy that they could not lift it from the floor. What is in this great old chest, mademoiselle, said Annette, that makes it so weighty? Emily having replied that she found it in the chamber when she first came to the castle and never examined it. Then I will, mademoiselle, said Annette, and she tried to lift the lid. But this was held by a lock, for which she had no key and which, indeed, appeared from its peculiar construction to open with the spring. The morning now glimmered through the casements, and the wind had sunk into a calm. Emily looked out upon the dusky woods, and on the twilight mountains, just stealing in the eye, and saw the whole scene, after the storm, lying in profound stillness. The woods motionless, and the clouds above, through which the dawn trembled, scarcely appearing to move along the heavens. One soldier was pacing the terrace beneath, with measured steps, and two, more distant, were sunk asleep on the walls, wearied with the night's watch, having inhaled, for a while, the pure spirit of the air and of vegetation which the late rains had called forth, and having listened once more for a note of music, she now closed the casement and retired to rest. End of Volume 3, Chapter 8 Recording by Andrew Drinkwater, January 20th, 2008 The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3, Chapter 9, Part A Thus on the chill Laponian's dreary land, For many a long month lost in snow profound, When soul from cancer sends the seasons bland, And in their northern cave the storms hath bound, From silent mountains, straight with startling sound, Torrents are hurled, green hills emerge, and lo, the trees with foliage, the cliffs with flowers are crowned. Pure rills through veils of verdure warbling go, and wonder, love, and joy, the peasant's heart o'erflow. 
डेडी Several of her succeeding days passed in suspense, for Ludovico could only learn from the soldiers that there was a prisoner in the apartment described to him by Emily, and that he was a Frenchman, whom they had taken in one of their skirmishes with a party of his countrymen. During this interval, Emily escaped the persecutions of Bertolini and Baretzi by confining herself to her apartment, except that sometimes, in an evening, she ventured to walk in the adjoining corridor. Montagny appeared to respect his last promise, though he had profaned his first, for to his protection only could she attribute her present repose. And in this she was now so secure that she did not wish to leave the castle till she could obtain some certainty concerning Valancourt, for which she waited, indeed, without any sacrifice of her own comfort since no circumstance had occurred to make her escape probable. On the fourth day, Ludovico informed her that he had hopes of being admitted to the presence of the prisoner, it being the turn of a soldier with whom he had been for some time familiar to attend him on the following night. He was not deceived in his hope, for, under pretense of carrying in a pitcher of water, he entered the prison, though his prudence having prevented him from telling the sentinel the real motive of his visit, he was obliged to make his conference with the prisoner a very short one. Emily awaited the result in her own apartment, Ludovico having promised to accompany Annette to the corridor in the evening, where, after several hours impatiently counted, he arrived. Emily having then uttered the name of Valancourt, could articulate no more, but hesitated in trembling expectation. The Chevalier would not entrust me with his name, Signora, replied Ludovico. But when I just mentioned yours, he seemed overwhelmed with joy, though he was not so surprised as I expected. Does he then remember me, she exclaimed. Oh, it is Monsieur Valancourt, said Annette, and looked impatiently at Ludovico, who understood her look and replied to Emily, Yes, lady, the Chevalier does indeed remember you, and I am sure has a very great regard for you. And I made bold to say you had for him. He then inquired how you came to know he was in the castle, and whether you ordered me to speak to him. The first question I could not answer, but the second I did, and then he went off into his ecstasies again. I was afraid his joy would have betrayed him to the sentinel at the door. But how does he look, Ludovico? interrupted Emily. Is he not melancholy and ill with this long confinement? Why, as to melancholy, I saw no symptom of that lady while I was with him for he seemed in the finest spirits I ever saw anybody in, in all my life. His countenance was all joy, and, if one may judge from that, he was very well, but I did not ask him. Did he send me no message? said Emily. Oh yes, senor, and something besides, replied Ludovico, who searched his pockets. Surely I have not lost it, added he. 
The Chevalier said he would have written Madame if he had had pen and ink, and was going to have sent a very long message when the sentinel entered the room, but not before he had given me this. Little Vico then drew forth a miniature from his bosom, which Emily received with a trembling hand, and perceived to be a portrait of herself, the very picture which her mother had lost so strangely in the fishing house at La Vallée. Tears of mingled joy and tenderness flowed to her eyes, while Ludovico proceeded. Tell your lady, said the chevalier, as he gave me the picture, that this has been my companion and only solace in all my misfortunes. Tell her that I have worn it next to my heart, and that I sent it her as the pledge of an affection which can never die, that I would not part with it but to her, for the wealth of worlds, and that I now part with it only in the hope of soon receiving it from her hands. Tell her, just then, Signor, the sentinel came in, and the chevalier said no more, but he had before asked me to contrive an interview for him with you, and when I told him how little hope I had of prevailing with the guard to assist me, he said, that was not, perhaps, of so much consequence as I imagined, and he bade me contrive to bring back your answer, and he would inform me of more than he chose to do then. So this, I think, lady, is the whole of what passed. How, Ludovico, shall I reward you for your zeal, said Emily, but, indeed, I do not now possess the means. When can you see the Chevalier again? That is uncertain, Signor, replied he. It depends on who stands guard next. There are not more than one or two among them from whom I would dare ask admittance to the prison chamber. I need not bid you remember, Ludovico, resumed Emily, how very much interested I am in your seeing the Chevalier soon. And when you do so, tell him that I have received the picture and with the sentiments he wished. Tell him I have suffered much, and still suffer. She paused. But, but shall I tell him you will see him, lady? Said Ludovico. Most certainly I will, replied Emily. But when, signora, and where? That must depend upon circumstances, returned Emily. The place and the hour must be regulated by his opportunities. As to the place, mademoiselle, said Annette. There is no other place in the castle besides this corridor, where we can see him in safety, you know. And, as for the hour, it must be when all the signors are asleep, if that ever happens. You may mention these circumstances to the Chevalier Ludovico, said she, checking the flippancy of Annette, and leave them to his judgment and opportunity. Tell him my heart is unchanged, but above all, let him see you again as soon as possible. And Ludovico, I think it is needless to tell you I shall very anxiously look for you. Having then wished her good night, Ludovico descended the staircase, and Emily retired to rest, but not to sleep, for joy now rendered her as wakeful as she had ever been from grief. Montigny and his castle had all vanished from her mind, like the frightful vision of a necromancer and she wandered once more in fairy scenes of unfading happiness. As when, 
beneath the beam of summer moons, the distant woods among, or by some flood, all silvered with the gleam, the soft embodied phase through airy portals stream. A week elapsed before Ludovico again visited the prison, for the sentinels during that period were men in whom he could not confide, and he feared to awaken curiosity by asking to see their prisoner. In this interval, he communicated to Emily terrific reports of what was passing in the castle, of riots, quarrels, and of carousals more alarming than either. While from some circumstances, which he mentioned, she not only doubted whether Montigny meant ever to release her, but greatly feared that he had designs concerning her, such as she had formerly dreaded. Her name was frequently mentioned in the conversations which Bertolini and Baretzi held together, and at those times they were frequently in contention. Montigny had lost large sums to Baretzi, so there was a dreadful possibility of his designing her to be a substitute for the debt, but as she was ignorant that he had formally encouraged the hopes of Berlini also concerning herself after the latter had done him some signal service, she knew not how to account for these contentions between Berlini and Varezzi. The cause of them, however, appeared to be of little consequence, for she thought she saw destruction approaching in many forms, and her entreaties to Lodovico would contrive an escape and to see the prisoner again were more urgent than ever. At length, he informed her that he had again visited the Chevalier, who had directed him to confide in the guard of the prison, from whom he had already received some instances of kindness, and who had promised to permit his going into the castle for half an hour on the ensuing night when Montigny and his companions should be engaged at their carousals. This was kind, to be sure, added Ludovico, but Sebastian knows he runs no risk in letting the Chevalier out, for if he can get beyond the bars and iron doors of the castle, he must be cunning indeed. But the Chevalier desired me, Signor, to go to you immediately, and to beg you would allow him to visit you this night, if it was only for a moment, for that he could no longer live under the same roof without seeing you. The hour, he said, he could not mention, for it must depend on circumstances, just as you said, Signor, and the place he desired you would appoint, as knowing which was best for your own safety. Emily was now so much agitated by the near prospect of meeting Valancourt that it was some time before she could give any answer to Ludovico, or consider of the place of meeting. When she did, she saw none that promised so much security as the corridor near her own apartment, which she was checked from leaving by the apprehension of meeting any of Montigny's guests on their way to their rooms, and she dismissed the scruples which delicacy opposed, now that a serious danger was to be avoided by encountering them. It was settled, therefore, that the Chevalier should meet her in the corridor at that hour of the night which Ludovico, who was to be upon the watch, should judge safest, and Emily, as may be imagined, 
passed this interval in a tumult of hope and joy, anxiety and impatience. Never since her residence in the castle had she watched with so much pleasure the sun set behind the mountains, and twilight shade and darkness veil the scene as on this evening. She counted the notes of the great clock and listened to the steps of the sentinels as they changed watch, only to rejoice that another hour was gone. O oh, Valancourt, said she, after all I have suffered, after our long separation, when I thought I should never, never see you more, we are still to meet again. Oh, I have endured grief and anxiety and terror, and let me, then, not sink beneath this joy. These were moments when it was impossible for her to feel emotions of regret or melancholy for any ordinary interests. Even the reflection that she had resigned the estates, which would have been a provision for herself and Valancourt for life, threw only a light and transient shade upon her spirits. The idea of Valancourt, and that she should see him so soon, alone occupied her heart. At length, the clock struck twelve. She opened the door to listen if any noise was in the castle, and heard only distant shouts of riot and laughter echoed feebly along the gallery. She guessed that the Signor and his guests were at the banquet. They are now engaged for the night, said she, and Valancourt will soon be here. Having softly closed the door, she paced the room with impatient steps, and often went to the casement to listen for the lute. But all was silent, and her agitation every moment increasing. She was, at length, unable to support herself, and sat down by the window. Annette, whom she detained, was, in the meantime, as loquacious as usual, but Emily heard scarcely anything she said, and having at length risen to the casement, she distinguished the chords of the lute, struck with an expressive hand, and then the voice she had formerly listened to accompanied it. Now rising love they fanned, now pleasing dole, they breathed in tender musings through the heart, and now a graver, sacred strain they stole, as when seraphic hands and him impart. Emily wept in doubtful joy and tenderness, and when the strain ceased, she considered it as a signal that Valancourt was about to leave the prison. Soon after, she heard steps in the corridor. They were the light, quick steps of hope. She could scarcely support herself as they approached, but opening the door of the apartment, she advanced to meet Valancourt, and in the next moment, sunk in the arms of a stranger. His voice, his countenance instantly convinced her, and she fainted away. End of Volume 3, Chapter 9, Part A Recording by Andrew Drinkwater in Madison, Wisconsin, January 27, 2008 The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3, Chapter 9, Part B
On reviving, she found herself supported by the stranger, who was watching over her recovery with a countenance of ineffable tenderness and anxiety. She had no spirits for reply or enquiry. She asked no questions, but burst into tears and disengaged herself from his arms. When the expression of his countenance changed to surprise and disappointment, and he turned to Ludovico for an explanation, Annette soon gave the information, which Ludovico could not. Oh, sir, said she in a voice interrupted with sobs. Oh, sir, you are not the other chevalier. We expected Monsieur Valancourt, but you are not he. Oh, Ludovico, how could you deceive us so? My poor lady will never recover it, never. The stranger, who now appeared much agitated, attempted to speak, but his words faltered, and then striking his hand against his forehead, as if in sudden despair, he walked abruptly to the other end of the corridor. Suddenly, Annette dried her tears and spoke to Ludovico. But perhaps, said she, after all, the other chevalier is not this. Perhaps the chevalier Valancourt is still below. Emily raised her head. No, replied Ludovico. Monsieur Valancourt never was below if this gentleman is not he. If you, sir, said Ludovico, addressing the stranger, would but have had the goodness to trust me with your name, this mistake had been avoided. Most true, replied the stranger, speaking in broken Italian. But it was of the utmost consequence to me that my name should be concealed from Montigny. Madame, added he then, addressing Emily in French, will you permit me to apologize for the pain I have occasioned you, and to explain to you alone my name and the circumstance which has led me into this error? I am of France, I am your countryman. We are met in a foreign land. Emily tried to compose her spirits, yet she hesitated to grant his request. At length, desiring that Ludovico would wait on the staircase, and detaining Annette, she told the stranger that her woman understood very little Italian, and begged he would communicate what he wished to say in that language. Having withdrawn to a distant part of the corridor, he said, with a long-drawn sigh, you, madame, are no stranger to me, though I am so unhappy as to be unknown to you. My name is Dupont. I am a France of Gascony, your native province, and have long admired, and why should I affect to disguise it, have long loved you. He paused, but in the next moment proceeded. My family, madame, is probably not unknown to you for we lived within a few miles of La Vallée, and I have, sometimes, had the happiness of meeting you on visits in the neighborhood. I will not offend you by repeating how much you interested me, how much I loved to wander in the scenes you frequented, how often I visited your favorite fishing house, and lamented the circumstance, which, at that time, forbade me to reveal my passion. I will not explain how I surrendered to temptation and became possessed of a treasure which was to me inestimable, a treasure which I committed to your messenger a few days ago with expectations very different from my present ones. I will say nothing of these circumstances, 
for I know they will avail me little. Let me only supplicate from you forgiveness, and the picture, which I so unwarily returned. Your generosity will pardon the theft and restore the prize. My crime has been my punishment, for the portrait I stole has contributed to nourish a passion which must still be my torment. Emily now interrupted him. I think, sir, I may leave it to your integrity to determine whether, after what has just happened concerning Monsieur Valancourt, I ought to return the picture. I think you will acknowledge that this would not be generosity, and you will allow me to add that it would be doing myself an injustice. I must consider myself honored by your good opinion, but, and she hesitated, the mistake of this evening makes it unnecessary for me to say more. It does, madame, alas, it does, said the stranger, who, after a long pause, proceeded. But you will allow me to shew my disinterestedness, though not my love, and will accept the services I offer. Yet, alas, what services can I offer? I am myself a prisoner, a sufferer, like you. But, dear as liberty is to me, I would not seek it through half the hazards I would encounter to deliver you from this recess of vice. Accept the offered services of a friend. Do not refuse me the reward of having, at least, attempted to deserve your thanks. You deserve them already, sir, said Emily. The wish deserves my warmest thanks. But you will excuse me for reminding you of the danger you incur by prolonging this interview. It will be a great consolation to me to remember, whether your friendly attempts to release me succeed or not, that I have a countryman who would so generously protect me. Dupont took her hand, which she but feebly attempted to withdraw, and pressed it respectfully to his lips. Allow me to breathe another fervent sigh for your happiness, said he, and to applaud myself for an affection which I cannot conquer. As he said this, Emily heard a noise from her apartment, and, turning round, saw the door from the staircase open, and a man rush into her chamber. "'I will teach you to conquer it,' cried he, as he advanced into the corridor, and drew a stiletto, which he aimed at Dupont, who was unarmed, but who, stepping back, avoided the blow, and then sprung upon Baretzi, from whom he wrenched the stiletto. While they struggled in each other's grasps, Emily, followed by Annette, ran further into the corridor, calling on Ludovico, who was, however, gone from the staircase, and, as she advanced, terrified and uncertain what to do, a distant noise that seemed to arise from the hall reminded her of the danger she was incurring, and, sending Annette forward in search of Ludovico, she returned to the spot where Dupont and Verazzi were still struggling for victory. It was her own cause which was to be decided, with that of the former, whose conduct, independently of this circumstance, would, however, have interested her in his success, even had she not disliked and dreaded Baretzi. She threw herself in a chair, and supplicated them to desist from further violence, till, at length, Dupont forced Baretzi to the floor, where he lay stunned by the violence of his fall and she then entreated Dupont to escape from the room before Montigny or his party should appear. But he still refused to leave her unprotected, and, while Emily, 
now more terrified for him than for herself, enforced the entreaty. They heard steps ascending the private staircase. Oh, you are lost, cried she. These are Montanese people. Dupont made no reply, but supported Emily, while, with a steady though eager countenance, he awaited their appearance. And in the next moment, Ludovico alone mounted the landing place. Throwing a hasty glance around the chamber, follow me, said he, as you value your lives. We have not an instant to lose. Emily inquired what had occurred and whither they were to go. I cannot stay to tell you now, Signora, replied Ludovico. Fly, fly. She immediately followed him, accompanied by Monsieur Dupont, down the staircase and along the vaulted passage, when suddenly she recollected Annette and inquired for her. She awaits us further on, Signora, said Ludovico, almost breathless with haste. The gates were opened. A moment since, to a party just come in from the mountains. They will be shut, I fear, before we can reach them. Through this door, Signora, El Ludovico holding down the lamp. Take care, here are two steps. Emily followed, trembling still more than before she had understood that her escape from the castle depended upon the present moment. While Dupont supported her and endeavored, as they passed along, to cheer up her spirits. Speak low, Signor," said Ludovico. These passages send echoes all around the castle. Take care of the light, cried Emily. You go so fast, the air will extinguish it. Ludovico now opened another door where they found Annette, and the party then descended a short flight of steps into a passage, which, Ludovico said, led round the inner court of the castle and opened into the outer one. As they advanced, confused and tumultuous sounds that seemed to come from the inner court alarmed Emily. Ne signora, replied Ludovico. Our only hope is in that tumult, while the signor's people are busied about the men who are just arrived. We may, perhaps, pass unnoticed through the gates. But hush, he added, as they approached a small door that opened into the outer court. If you will remain here a moment, I will go to see whether the gates are open and anybody is in the way. Pray, extinguish the light, Signor, if you hear me talking, continued Ludovico, delivering the lamp to Dupont, and remain quite still. Saying this, he stepped out upon the court, and they closed the door, listening anxiously to his departing steps. No voice, however, was heard in the court, which he was crossing though a confusion of many voices yet issued from the inner one. We shall soon be beyond the walls, said Dupont to Emily. Support yourself a little longer, madame, and all will be well. But soon they heard Ludovico speaking loud, and the voice also of some other person, and Dupont immediately extinguished the lamp. Ah, it is too late, exclaimed Emily. What is to become of us? They listened again, and then perceived that Ludovico was talking with a sentinel, whose voices were heard also by Emily's favorite dog, that had followed her from the chamber, and now barked loudly. This dog will betray us, said Dupont. I will hold him. I fear he has already betrayed us, replied Emily. Dupont, however, caught him up, and again listening to what was going on without, they heard Ludovico say, I'll watch the gates for a while. 
Stay a minute, replied the sentinel, and you need not have the trouble, for the horses will be sent round to the outer stables, and the gates will be shut, and I can leave my post. I don't mind the trouble, comrade, said Ludovico. You will do such another good turn for me sometime. Go, go, and fetch the wine. The rogues that are just come in will drink it all else. The soldier hesitated, and then called aloud to the people in the second court to know why they did not send out the horses, that the gates might be shut. But they were too much engaged to attend him, even if they heard his voice. Aye, aye, said Ludovico. They know better than that. They are sharing it all among them. If you wait till the horses come out, you must wait till the wine is drunk. I have had my share already, but since you do not care about yours, I see no reason why I should not have that too. Hold, hold, not so fast, cried the sentinel. Do watch then for a moment. I'll be with you presently. Don't hurry yourself, said Ludovico coolly. I have kept the guard before now. But you may leave me your trombone, that if the castle should be attacked, you know, I may be able to defend the pass like a hero. Note, a trombone is a kind of blunderbuss. A-R. There, my good fellow, returned the soldier. There, take it. It has seen service, though it could do little in defending the castle. I'll tell you a good story, though, about this same trombone. You'll tell it better when you've had the wine, said Ludovico. There, you're coming out from the court already. I'll have the wine, though, said the sentinel running off. I won't keep you a minute. Take your time, I am in no haste, replied Ludovico, who was already hurrying across the court when the soldier came back. Whither so fast, friend, whither so fast, said the latter. What, is this the way you keep watch? I must stand to post myself, I see. Aye, well, replied Ludovico. You have saved me the trouble of following you further, but I wanted to tell you, if you have a mind to drink the Tuscany wine, you must go to Sebastian. He is dealing it out. The other that Federico has is not worth having, but you are not likely to have any, I see, for they are all coming out. By St. Peter, so they are, said the soldier, and again ran off, while Ludovico, once more at liberty, hastened to the door of the passage, where Emily was sinking under the anxiety this long discourse had occasioned. But, on his telling them the court was clear, they followed him to the gates, without waiting another instant, yet not before he had seized two horses that had strayed from the second court and were picking a scanty meal among the grass which grew between the pavement of the first. They passed, without interruptions, the dreadful gates, and took the road that led down among the woods, Emily, Monsieur Dupont, and Annette on foot, and Ludovico, who was mounted on one horse, leading the other. Having reached them, they stopped, while Emily and Annette were placed on horseback with their two protectors, when Ludovico leading the way, they set off as fast as the broken road and the feeble light, which a rising moon threw among the foliage, would permit. Emily was so much astonished by this sudden departure that she scarcely dared to believe herself awake, and she yet much doubted whether this adventure would terminate in escape, a doubt which had too much probability to justify it, for before they quitted the woods, they heard shouts in the wind, and, on emerging from them, saw lights moving quickly near the castle above. 
Dupont whipped his horse, and with some difficulty compelled him to go faster. Ah, poor beast, said Ludovico, he is weary enough. He has been out all day, but, Signor, we must fly for it. Now, for yonder are lights coming this way. Having given his own horse a lash, they now both set off on a full gallop, and when they again looked back, the lights were so distant as scarcely to be discerned, and the voices were sunk into silence. The travelers then abated their pace, and consulting whither they should direct their course, it was determined they should descend into Tuscany and endeavor to reach the Mediterranean where they could readily embark for France. Thither Dupont meant to attend Emily if he should learn that the regiment he had accompanied into Italy was now returned to his native country. They were now in the road which Emily had traveled with Ugo and Bertrand, but Ludovico, who was the only one of the party acquainted with the passes of these mountains, said that a little further on, a by-road branching from this would lead them down into Tuscany with very little difficulty, and that, at a few leagues distance, there was a small town where necessaries could be procured for their journey. But I hope, added he, we shall meet with no struggling parties of banditti. Some of them are abroad, I know. However, I have got a good trombone, which will be of some service, if we should encounter any of those brave spirits. You have no arms, senor? Yes, replied Dupont. I have the villain Stiletto, who would have stabbed me, but let us rejoice in our escape from Udolfo, nor torment ourselves with looking out for dangers that may never arrive. The moon was now risen high over the woods that hung upon the sides of the narrow glen through which they wandered, and afforded them light sufficient to distinguish their way, and to avoid the loose and broken stones that frequently crossed it. They now traveled leisurely and in profound silence, for they had scarcely yet recovered from the astonishment into which this sudden escape had thrown them. Emily's mind especially was sunk, after the various emotions it had suffered, into a kind of musing stillness, which the reposing beauty of the surrounding scene and the creeping murmur of the night breeze among the foliage above contributed to prolong. She thought of Valancourt and of France with hope, and she would have thought of them with joy had not the first events of this evening harassed her spirits too much to prevent her now to feel so lively a sensation. Meanwhile, Emily was alone the object of Dupont's melancholy consideration. Yet, with the despondency he suffered, as he mused on his recent disappointment, was mingled a sweet pleasure occasioned by her presence, though they did not now exchange a single word. Annette thought of this wonderful escape, of the bustle in which Montagny and his people must be, now that their flight was discovered, of her native country, whither she hoped she was returning, and of her marriage with Ludovico, to which there no longer appeared any impediment, for poverty she did not consider such. Ludovico, on his part, congratulated himself on having rescued his Annette and Signora Emily from the danger that had surrounded them. 
on his own liberation from people whose manners he had long detested, on the freedom he had given to Monsieur Dupont, on his prospect of happiness with the object of his affections, and not a little on the address with which he had deceived the sentinel and conducted the whole of this affair. Thus variously engaged in thought, the travelers passed on silently for above an hour, a question only being now and then asked by Dupont concerning the road, or a remark uttered by Annette respecting objects seen imperfectly in the twilight. At length, lights were perceived twinkling on the side of a mountain, and Ludovico had no doubt that they proceeded from the town he had mentioned, while his companions, satisfied by this assurance, sunk again into silence. Annette was the first who interrupted this. Holy Peter, said she, what shall we do for money on our journey? For I know neither I nor my lady have a single sequin. The Signor took care of that. This remark produced a serious inquiry, which was ended in a serious and embarrassment, for Dupont had been rifled of nearly all his money when he was taken prisoner. The remainder he had given to the sentinel, who had enabled him occasionally to leave his prison chamber, and Ludovico, who had for some time found a difficulty in procuring any part of the wages due to him, had now scarcely cash sufficient to procure necessary refreshment at the first town in which they should arrive. Their poverty was the more distressing, since it would detain them among the mountains, where, even in a town, they could scarcely consider themselves safe from Montigny. The travelers, however, had only to proceed and dare the future, and they continued their way through lonely wilds and dusky valleys, where the overhanging foliage now admitted and then excluded the moonlight, wilds so desolate that they appeared on the first glance as if no human being had ever trod them before. Even the road in which the party were did but slightly contradict this error, for the high grass and other luxuriant vegetation with which it was overgrown told how very seldom the foot of a traveler had passed it. At length, from a distance, was heard the faint tinkling of a sheep bell, and soon after the bleat of flocks, and the party then knew that they were near some human habitation, for the light, which Ludovico had fancied to proceed from a town, had long been concealed by intervening mountains. Cheered by this hope, they quickened their pace along the narrow pass they were winding, and it opened upon one of those pastoral valleys of the Apennine, which might be painted for a scene of Arcadia, and whose beauty and simplicity are finely contrasted by the grandeur of the snow-tapped mountains above. The morning light, now glimmering in the horizon, shewed faintly at a little distance upon the brow of a hill, which seemed to peep from under the opening eyelids of the morn, the town they were in search of, and which they soon after reached. It was not without some difficulty that they there found a house which could afford shelter for themselves and their horses, and Emily desired they might not rest longer than was necessary for refreshment. Her appearance excited some surprise, for she was without a hat, 
having had time only to throw on her veil before she left the castle, a circumstance that compelled her to regret again the want of money without which it was impossible to procure this necessary article of dress. Ludovico, on examining his purse, found it even insufficient to supply present refreshment, and Dupont, at length, ventured to inform the landlord, whose countenance was simple and honest, of their exact situation, and requested that he would assist them to pursue their journey, a purpose which he promised to comply with, as far as he was able, when he learned that they were prisoners escaping from Montigny, whom he had too much reason to hate. But though he consented to lend them fresh horses to carry them to the next town, he was too poor himself to trust them with money, and they were again lamenting their poverty, when Ludovico, who had been with his tired horses to the hovel, which served for a stable, entered the room half frantic with joy, in which his auditors soon participated. On removing the saddle from one of the horses, he had found beneath it a small bag, containing, no doubt, the booty of one of the condottieri, who had returned from a plundering excursion. Just before Ludovico left the castle, and whose horse having strayed from the inner court, while his master was engaged in drinking, had brought away the treasure, which the ruffian had considered the reward of his exploit. On counting over this, Dupont found that it would be more than sufficient to carry them all to France, where he now determined to accompany Emily, whether he should obtain intelligence of his regiment or not. For, though he had as much confidence in the integrity of Ludovico as his small knowledge of him allowed, he could not endure the thought of committing her to his care for the voyage, nor perhaps had he resolution enough to deny himself the dangerous pleasure which he might derive from her presence. He now consulted them concerning the seaport, to which they should direct their way, and Ludovico, better informed of the geography of the country, said that Leghorn was the nearest port of consequence, which Dupont knew also to be the most likely of any in Italy to assist their plan, since from thence vessels of all nations were continually departing. Thither, therefore, it was determined that they should proceed. Emily, having purchased the little straw hat, such as was worn by the peasant girls of Tuscany, and some other little necessary equipments for the journey, and the travelers, having exchanged their tired horses for others better able to carry them, recommenced their joyous way, as the sun was rising over the mountains, and, after traveling through this romantic country for several hours, began to descend into the Vale of Arno, and here Emily beheld all the charms of sylvan and pastoral landscape united, adorned with the elegant villas of the Florentine nobles, and diversified with the various riches of cultivation. How vivid the shrubs that embowered the slopes, with the woods that stretched amphitheatrically along the mountains, and, above all, how elegant the outline of these waving Apennine, now softening from the wildness which their interior regions exhibited. At a distance, in the east, Emily discovered Florence, with its towers rising on the brilliant horizon, 
and its luxuriant plain, spreading to the feet of the Apennine, speckled with gardens and magnificent villas, were colored with groves of orange and lemon, with vines, corn, and plantations of olives and mulberry. While, to the west, the vale opened to the waters of the Mediterranean, so distant that they were known only by a bluish line that appeared upon the horizon, and by the light marine vapor which just stained the aether above. With a full heart, Emily hailed the waves that were to bear her back to her native country, the remembrance of which, however, brought with it a pang, for she had there no home to receive, no parents to welcome her, but was going, like a forlorn pilgrim, to weep over the sad spot where he who was her father lay interred. Nor were her spirits cheered when she considered how long it would probably be before she should see Valancourt, who might be stationed with his regiment in a distant part of France, and that, when they did meet, it would be only to lament the successful villainy of Montigny. Yet, still she would have felt inexpressible delight at the thought of being once more in the same country with Valancourt, had it even been certain that she could not see him. End of chapter 9, part E.